13th edition of our podcast, Cult Following, which you can find online at cultfollowing.co, where you also put on monthly screening events every month, where you can see your favorite movies on the big screen at Cult Classics AZ and Tempe. Find us on Facebook at Cult Classics AZ. And I'm one of your hosts today. I'm Victor Marino, along with Kirby Nelson, Adam Murkowski. And Ruby Tate, which would be our moderator in this live edition of Cult Following. Clap now. All right. In this special live edition, live, everybody, we're going to be talking about horror oh, heroes. We're always live. Well, yes, but now you can hear us, you know. They can still hear us. That's true. You're blowing my mind here. watching us. We're going to be talking about horror heroes. Who do you cheer for? Because anytime we watch a horror movie, you know, we go see a Friday the 13th. We want to see Mrs. Voorhees or Jason kill a bunch of virginal or perhaps drug-using maladroits. Maladroits, I would say. And, uh, I love Mala Joyce. She's my favorite actress. Yes, she is. Oscar winner in 1933. No, but uh, we want to see the bad guys kill the good guys, but sometimes the good guys are a little awesome. They could be a Heather Langenkamp in A Nightmare on Elm Street, or they could be a Jack Burton in yeah. Big Trouble in Little China. So we're kind of going to go around this panel and talk about who do we cheer for and why. So Kirby, do you have any ideas here, buddy? Well, I think the... Uh when I think about horror heroes, I mean, that's the funnest part of horror is that it's one of the few genres where people really do cheer for the villains, but you can also, and I mean, they, those uh, villains could have uh, whatever uh, misguided intentions of uh, justice, morality, and whatnot, or just good old fashioned revenge. But then you can also have the protagonist uh, be the hero as well. And uh, obviously, uh, the uh, shining definition of that would be the uh, the ever-present final girl, especially in uh, uh, slashers from the late seventies to uh, late eight, late nineties, and current. I think we're going to talk about the final girl a little bit in a few ways that might be new to some of our listeners. But Adam, what do you think when you think about horror heroes? Well, it's 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 really not that different from like the description that we have. It's really when you're watching a film, it's the who are you rooting for? And it's really from the director's and writer's perspective as far as how they, how psychologically they, they influence that, I think, a lot too. Um, you know, who are we going to identify with? Why are we going to identify with the person in some way or live vicariously through um, a, a villain or a good guy? Because uh, obviously I would suspect that most of us don't go uh, to a general store and just start shooting people in the face without really any remorse. We I think we. we I, I won't comment on my past. I know we would shoot people and have remorse. I think. And we have a special guest on our panel, Ruby from Geekly Phoenix, an awesome group you should check out on Facebook. Uh, and she's an admin there, and it tells you about cool local events. And Ruby, are, who do you cheer for when you see horror movies? Do you cheer for the killer or the girl or the hero? What, what makes you want to cheer for somebody? 
It depends on the hero and the bad guy. Like, mm -hmm. I do cheer for Jack Burton, mm -hmm. even though I do love Lil Pan, um, but it just depends on the movie. Yeah, it's, it depends on how sassy the hero is. Mm -hmm. Charisma is important. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit, because here's my opinion on the final girl. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and be the heel here, the devil's advocate, if you will. Um, you know, everybody brings up, like, Ripley, right? You know, there's Ripley, there's... Uh, you know, Nancy from, and Alice, who the less said about Alice in the latter Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, the better. But what about Wendy from The Shining? Can you really say she was a character you really care for? I mean, seriously, I, I, I think Jack in The Shining is a crazy mofo, but anytime I hear her go, Jack, Jack, I'm like, put an axe through her head, man. I don't know. Charisma counts for a lot. What do you think, Kirby? <laughs> As he shakes well, his head. Quality set up there to defend. No, I mean, I think that, that that's not a bad devil's advocate to play because there are people who are that kind of individual and you don't want them to win. Again, it's just cheering for the villain. And the final girl is not always the, the, the most charismatic or uh, endearing because there's definitely final girls that you hate. And then there's ones that... Uh, I don't want to do too many like spoiler alert kind of things, but I mean like a happy birthday to me going for like the obscure points is like, you know, because you can be the final girl and, and the villain. You can, well, you can do a lot of different things. That's also a victim of, let's throw a plot twist in here for no reason. Let's be fair. <laughs> that way you could do that too. Or it can be somebody too that, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun too. Like, like you mentioned, start off with a Friday the 13th, a Mrs. Voorhees who is, you know, really, you hear about Miss Voorhees or the down the fate of Jason, but you don't really know it till the very end. So there's not a lot of build up to sympathize either way. But when she starts going in her monologue and all that, it's just that's true. You got to enjoy it. I mean, but that means you know those those kids are proxies for those fucked up drug using counselors from the 40s or 50s whenever Jason was born because he's like 80 now, you know. <laughs> But I, I've actually thought about this, this topic a little bit, and I've thought of a couple of examples I'd like both of you guys to comment on that I think would be right up your alley. And um, Adam, we'll go to you since I just went to Kirby. You love Hellraiser. We all know this. I like Kirsty a lot, but I also like Pinhead. What's your stance on this battle, my friend? The first, and I, I did make notes about that, because. I knew it! <laughs> we didn't say we are going to use notes, man. Each has their own different style, you know. I, uh, but let me kind of refresh what I wrote here, because I was a little bit lit when I wrote it. <laughs> okay, so the thing, the thing about Hellraiser, especially like the first Hellraiser, it wasn't all about the Cenobites. The Cenobites were just kind of... Uh, consequence of what was going on in the, in the situations that were surrounding it. It was more of kind of like the mother and daughter and father story That's that true. was going on. It was a Greek so, tragedy, yes. Um, you, you were really, mo the, re the real villain was Julia in that, in that scenario. Yeah, and Frank, but yeah, Julia, I, I think. But so. more Julia. Yes. Because she was doing some really sinister stuff for her own selfish needs. True. While Frank was just kind of ma trying to manipulate the situations, but really Julia was, you know, pulling the reins on everything. Um, just, but yeah, and then you would cheer for Kirsty because she was the, the person who was 
we were she was the person that we were in the film mm-hmm. we were looking through her eyes and discovering everything that was going on um, but no I, yeah I liked I like uh, Kirstie in as well um, yeah, but it was it was a family story. That's really all I had. A different thing though is, is that as opposed to like the Cenobites being, you know, horror heroes and stuff, if you invite them, right? You know that that's that's how it works. You know that's not. I mean, maybe so they more like a like in, uh, in the first one. They're more like a plot device. You know, to sort of yeah. But I'm saying compared to like other horror heroes. I mean, you could say something like a. Um, Intentionally or you know, obviously unintentionally, in the Evil Dead with the Necronomicon or any of the various like um, uh, satanic black magic. Oh yeah, well the films. Necronomicon is a lot like the puzzle box. You know, it's the key to unleashing the evil within, right? Yeah, but then you want you cheer for you cheer for the people though that you want you uh, like with the Cenobites. Even though, as Adam pointed out, very appropriately, both in the original novella *Hellbound Heart* and in the film, they're really supposed to be—they're the centerpiece for like part of the special effects and the the visual style. But it's really about—it is about the family. And Julia is one of the greatest horror villains of all time. I mean, or horror hero, if you mm-hmm. you know just want to—you yeah, know—you you want your lover to come back and you want to kill well, a lot then, of people again. You know, it makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Whatever needs to happen. She needs closure. Exactly. She does. But for like Julia, she became such an evil bitch in the second one. I mean, they just even amped it up even more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think she she pretty much went full on mommy dearest in the the second right. one. So it was no wire. So hands. really, like, because well, and then also you know, Pinhead and the Cenobites had more of a, a front stage as well. But when you start rooting for Julia and how the types of kills and how you know and you almost kind of want to make her like get away with it or Be punished so bad by the Cenobites. You want to see what's gonna happen True true. So Kirby the example I was thinking for you was the exorcist an excellent one Okay, and this is one that's a little bit more complicated since Reagan isn't really so much the evil horror, but it, uh, the person inside Reagan. Yeah but then you have Father Marin. Would you consider him to be the hero of the movie? Um, you know, again, another spoiler for anyone who actually hasn't seen The Exorcist. If you haven't, go out and get it right now. But uh, the because uh, it's the greatest film ever made. Uh, but really, what it is is that with The Exorcist, um, you know, a lot of people construe different things from it. Well, one of the biggest is. Um, you know, uh, the classic, it's not just a classic battle between good and evil, it is about the bonds of faith and of sacrifice of, of um, you know, numerous um, issues and, and actually it's Father Karras to me who really is the hero in the film, not literally by a symbolic sacrifice to save uh, Ray McNeil, but because he is completely tormented um, by the, how, how the death of his mother, how he treated her, how he sacrificed her for his faith. Um, and it's just extremely powerful. It's kind of like, as Adam was saying about Hellraiser, you know, it's much more of a morality film. It is, uh, I mean, William Peerblatty wrote it um, and also directed the third one. He always said it was a supernatural detective story. Um, Kinderman is a hero in many ways in the film, Detective Kinderman. Marin is, but Marin is a broken man. And if 
either Exodus 2 or Exodus 4, either versions, had ever been able to accurately portray his, his backstory, they do catch bits and pieces at work. You would understand that he really, um, he's, he's not, he is a hero, he is the, the martyr in a lot of ways, but he is also completely defeated and he almost, you, you want to root for him, but you also know he's, um, he's not strong enough. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like you kind of, you don't love him, you don't hate him. You just are not, not sure. And I don't think he's sure what to do in his life or inevitable death. So is that why you think people empathize with him then? Like probably. As, as I think if, we were put in that, if we were put in that position, if we were thrown into the movie, I think I would probably feel like I wouldn't be able to handle it either. Well, that's why so it's, it's supposed to be that that's the, uh, the uh, Roman ritual of exorcism is supposed to be that you need two priests. Uh, it's both for the call and response as well as for the assistant of duties um, through, through the process. But you just... Yeah, well, I'm ordained. It's all good. Okay. Uh, and, uh, hey, you don't know online, my past, all right? Yeah, I've been possessed by lots of things, bad ideas and demons. That's true. It also helps me, you know, you get ordained online. You know, it's yeah. all good. Uh, but no, I really think that that you know, it is that kind of that it, it is um, you know, cooperative effort. The spiritual body, whether you consider it of the church or whether you consider it of just those individuals, because obviously, as the film goes on, there uh, the churches doesn't want to approve the exorcism that they're going to do it no matter what, and I think that's the scariest part. Not only facing complete and utter evil alone, but you know, that, that, I mean, that's really it. That's that's really scary. I mean, but that's if a real a good slasher film because they're very can be very comical and stuff. But a good one is the one that makes you see. It not just a POV shot of the killer, but I, I would make a slash film with the POV shot from the victim more because that's what's truly frightening. It's thinking about being alone with a killer chasing you down, tormenting you. I mean, it's, it's really frightening when you think about it. It's just, you gotta have a good pop. Yeah, or like fun. that thing, like in like Strange Days, where they have, oh, they yeah, have that's all right. the, like the rape stuff and the kill stuff, and then they would like, you know, watch them watch. The killer. Well, yeah, that's why I really thought you were going. Really I thought you were going to go with brain scan or something there. And I was, I was, I was hyped. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why Lenny Nero doesn't deal in snuff. Everything before that is good. <laughs> no, but um, I think I guess I was looking at a different. Like Kirby, as usual, went really intellectual on this, and I was. <laughs> but I, I like the angle there. Where like when, you know when you're looking at, I was thinking more like the alignment of like, you know, archetype versus archetype, or just like, you know, good versus evil with some shades, but then you're getting to like institutional, you know, especially in the exorcist where like the Catholic Church is kind of like, you can't do this, you know, but then I think about something like Big Trouble in Little China, where if you watch that movie straight off, you think, oh, well, I gotta go for like Jack Burton because he's charismatic and goddamn it, he has like a monster truck basically, and uh, he can, he has sharp reflex skills. And then Lopan, because, you know, he's a traditional yellow menace, like boom Manchu, like Ming the Merciless type character. But then the more you watch that, and once you get like, I guess most of us here and some of us out in our crowd today that's seen that movie probably dozens or hundreds of times, you can start seeing Lo Pan as this really like kind of like sympathetic figure. I mean, if you listen to the story that, uh, you know, Ed, you know, Eddie and Uncle Chu tell you that like, you know, Lo Pan, like he was cursed 
uh, you know, by the first sovereign emperor of China with no flesh until he meets uh, this green-eyed girl in Asia, which seems pretty much impossible at that point in time. And he only gets his curse, really, if you think about it, because he lost the battle. You don't know if this first sovereign China emperor guy was any better or might have been worse than Lo Pan, you know? And he's been around for, like, what, 3,000 years at this point as a feeble old man in a wheelchair? I can kind of see where, like, I'd be willing to kidnap Kim Cattrall and see, like, all right, let's see if this works. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe but I will put it on the earth to get it, Mr. Marino. Indeed! <laughs> Well, that's true. That, that, I think they had to... He's going to turn the world into hell. Yeah, he, you know... <laughs> it might have been a cool hell. There'd be guys with, like, lightning strikes and, you know, flying eyeballs. You know, like Mortal Kombat or something. I don't know, but it's one of those things where I can... I like it when I can empathize with a villain in all seriousness. And I like it when there's that degree of, you know... Oh, I, there's empathy there. I mean... You know, Jason and Friday the 13th has it. I think, I don't think uh, Freddy and Nightmare on Elm Street started having that and so he started building up his backstory, I think, about a Nightmare on Elm Street 3, where he was, you know, the son of a nun who was raped by a thousand maniacs. And it's like, what? Spoiler? What? <laughs> oh, four or five. Yeah, it starts to happen around that part. But, you know, but then they develop Alice, who I don't want to get into because I don't like that character. But at the same time, I'm just trying... How much Alice hate, man? All right, let's hear you defend the dream child. <laughs> so I'm I'm saying. What was the thing called that we just went to? <laughs> oh, the uh, Phoenix Ultimate Geek Smackdown. Yeah. yeah. No. Defend Alice. Go. No, I'm not, it's not just a face. Well, she's not Freddy's daughter. Yeah, that's, that's really the truth. No, I don't think it's that bad, but I think the great point that you bring up there is who do you empathize with? Mm -hmm. Because you obviously like anything, whether it's uh, TV, film, comics, books, people empathize with them. And it's sometimes it's not something you directly have, but like for me, one of the big ones is I feel like I'm, in a, I'm like deja vu of the panel we had last year defending the same stuff but my other favorite film is Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the original film it really is Leatherface people go you can't sympathize with him like I can it's in the sense of that well he was raised really, by a family yeah, yeah either, he knew no other way he knew no other way and you can tell like one of the things that Gunnar Hansen, the actor who portrayed him, he both talks in his book, Chainsaw Confidential, and a lot of the supplemental materials and documentaries is how, uh, you know, there's a part where uh, the people have come into the house and you see him at like the windowsill and he's very, you can tell even though through the mask and the noises he makes, he's very like flustered, very worried, anxiety ridden, because it's like he's a simpleton, he has no idea what's going on and it's like that that's that's uh, another thing where you can be like man that's really scary too it's like well, yeah you're the guy with the chainsaw the mallet and everything else but he's he's afraid of his own family too oh yeah no when you look the at that movie uh for the most part he's treated by a freak by a family of psychopaths i mean that's pretty much the lowest of the low you can go that part later on in the movie uh when uh the final girl gets away, she passed away. Marilyn Burns. Marilyn Burns. Um, and he starts doing that chainsaw dance. I mean, that's so open to interpretation when you look at it, like on an academic or a deeper level. You know, it's like, is it, is he happy because he was sort of freed of having to finish this act? Or is, or is it just some kind of like elation because he knows this act of killing has to keep on going? 
it's something I've thought about over time. Like, you know, especially like in other movies that are sort of similar in that vein. Like if you look at the Devil's Rejects specifically, I mean, I won't go into different, like there's a lot of different ways you can go into Rob Zombie's overall movie career and his, you know, writing skills, you know, versus House of a Thousand Corpses. But Devil's Rejects, he very specifically takes these characters who were horrible villains in the first one and goes out of his way to make them sympathetic, going in his way to making the police, like, you know, delusional, seeing visions. And that's an interesting thing that might be exploring a little bit. What do you think, Adam? Oh, just to get me involved. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, we, were, right. we were dominating. We're no, trying to go fine. back no. to the left. I, I became, you know, a, a listener. Uh, no, you know, I... This is one of the things that I always had issue with whenever I would take a literary course and when I went to film school for a brief amount of time and I would take like film history is deconstructing films and finding like the, the purpose or the meaning behind like every little tiny little detail and purpose and you know how it all like your perspective on it and then uh, you know what does this mean what does that mean what what is that a metaphor for and it kind of took me out of the experience and I had to stop doing that. So most of what I, I was kind of looking at, I've seen Hellraiser so many times that, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's crazy balls for me now. So that's a completely different thing, which absolutely means nothing what I just said right now. But what, one of the things that I, I was looking at and trying to um, put this all in perspective is where are those movies where you are rooting for both at the same time? And there's a that's couple good, examples that I have. Question. All right. And I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw out Signs of the Lambs because you had Hannibal Lecter. That's a good one. That's who was one. just absolutely brilliant, and you were just fixated by him and what you know what was he gonna do next? And then he had Agent Starling, and you wanted her to do good, and we were the Agent Starlings watching the film. Um, and then you had Buffalo Bill, which was a completely different entity in there. But, you know, you're rooting for Hannibal Lecter, especially, you know, again, a spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, my God, what's wrong with you? <laughs> the end, when he says, oh, I'm meeting somebody for dinner, it's like, you know, it's, that's awesome. I want to see it going for another, you know, 20 minutes. But we made our own story, you know, that happened right after when he walked away. But that, that was one of my examples. Do you guys have any examples where you're rooting for both the, the hero and the villain? Even though Hannibal Lecter was kind of just... But that goes to the charismatic point that Victor brought up, yeah. is you really need that to, I think to root for both, you really need, absolutely need it to be. I think Ruby has an example here. To bring it to a slightly girlier movie, um, Legend is a good one, I would say. Oh. Because I really cheer for darkness. And as he says at the end, you know, what is dark without light? You know, how do you banish darkness? You, it, it's a necessary part of the world. So, you know, so I'm, but I'm also cheering for the world not being frozen and run over by goblins and all that whatnot. So, you know, that's, I think that's a good one where it's both, I want everybody to win. That's a good point. And actually, this, this leads to something that Adam just said. A lot of these movies we talk about have these secondary antagonists that, like, if they weren't there, God, you know, the, you, you would think the, the bad guy wouldn't be as bad. This is, you know, one of these things about story structure. You know, when you look at Buffalo Bill, like, you know right from the get-go Hannibal Lecter knows who Buffalo Bill is. But at the same time, because he's stringing uh, Agent Starling along, that's when we start to build an empathy with her. You know, because I can watch Sons of the Lambs and go, I, I really want... Uh, you know, Clarice to, you know, catch Buffalo Bill and then they can keep, you know, Lecter in his cage. But at the same time, 
you know, you kind of want Lecter to get out so you could kill that stupid prison warden. God damn, he's a douchebag. Not as much fun as it was watching Ray Liotta get in Hannibal. Right? That was my, my vote. Way more fun and, and much more creative, but yeah. But like I said, a lot of times it's a secondary antagonist, but yeah, I'm trying to think of another movie. Like, I can think of some movies that like aren't necessarily horror, but maybe are sort of genre in a way. Like when you watch The Dark Knight, like a lot of times I think, you know, the Joker honestly seems to be, a, you know, not anywhere near as corrupt as the Gotham Police Department that's depending on this vigilante. And in the end, the Joker actually wins. And the only Pyrrhic victory the good guys get is, I'm going to take the fall for this psycho killer we created because he had such a fragile ego. You know, but there's also another movie, it's sort of like genre, it's like uh, No Country for Old Men. You know, I, I look at like Anton Sugar and he has a very strange moral code. I mean, you could argue he's like a kind of a nuanced villain. You know what's going on, but like, you know, when he's sitting there in that gasoline station with that moron and he like gives him the chance to save his life as a coin and he's, don't put that in your pocket. <laughs> well, why? It's a coin, like any other coin. Don't get lost. You know, I just love that character. I just love doing impressions. I do. I'm just being silly for a live crowd for once. <laughs> but yeah, I, it's one of those things where you think that movie, like when I first saw it, it really angered me because the Coen brothers really played me with like, I wanted to see this fight between, you know, Sugar and I wanted to see him get into it with Josh Brolin. And then we're deprived of that by some completely ancillary thing that really has nothing to do in the end. And then you think Anton Sugar is going to kind of of, you know get his at the end and then he doesn't really and then it just leads into tragedy so it's weird when Vic, uh, Ruby was saying something kind of like on you know we started kind of going outside the lines one of the ones I always think of it's kind of weird especially to think about the time period and stuff and like a kind of like a pre-Columbine world but I always think of Heathers is <laughs> oh. another great one where people just, I mean, it's like you are completely. Yeah, rooting. look at that one, like Jawbreaker, you know that. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Another, you know, it's, it's just one of those ones where it's like you. I think some of it is you were the people who were bullied and the people who were bullies, you know. And there's a lot of things and stuff in that kind of. Or I mean, even another one I I, I recently rewatched is kind of like Jawbreaker is another yeah. one like that. You know, it's that very like dark John Hughes kind of style, but well, they really I, work. I think of the craft because that's a really interesting example where you see like you're you're going into that movie from the point of view of like the outsider girl you know and then she makes friends with outsiders and you think oh they're gonna find they don't they can exist outside of this existing social structure that's kind of tormenting them through Wicca you know and I'm like okay and then you start to find that like, well, no, there's an unstable one and power is just going to make her the villain. But at the same time, I can really empathize with Nancy in that movie. And I think the way she ends up at the end is like super messed up, you know, especially since Sarah's ostensibly presented at the hero. And then at the end, it's like, you don't want to end up like Nancy because I made her end up in a mental hospital. I mean. That's the thing where both characters completely undergo a role reversal and you're like, who are you really cheering for at the end? You know, the good girl who's kind of become corrupt just like Nancy did. It's like the flip side of the mirror. Oh, somebody had a question. No, that's just a big walking stick back there. Yeah. Come up here so we can hear you on the, just run up here. 
I was wondering whether the horror movies pre-Columbine might have shaped the stereotypes of a school shooter more than any actual school shooters might have. Hmm, like... Whether the profile owed more... Whether the classic school shooter profile owed more to the to horror movies because it turned out not to translate well into reality. Okay. All right, we'll, we'll address that a little bit. How many of you guys have seen the first season of American Horror Story? All right, most of the people in the crowd have raised their hands. Now, Evan Peters' character is presented in that show as kind of like a 90s Kurt Cobain-ish kind of character that you find out was actually killed by the police after he shot up his high school bullies who were tormenting him. Am I right here, or am I kind of off? Oh yeah, he was kind of, yeah. But he felt like he was an outsider. So to me, it, that kind of gels along what we were saying with the craft, where I think you look at movies, a lot of them kind of play into that whole, you know, outsider, I'm gonna fix things through violence things, just like in Heathers with JD, right, Kirby? Well, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people, JD, you know, he is just that, you know, it's not just obviously a complete, obviously James Dean caricature or outline, Filled with the, um, you know, the obviously like very teenage fantasies of this is a simplistic way to solve all your problems, you know, and and then everything will be all right. And that's, you know, it, it is almost like a Joker or some of the other things. Not as deep. It's it's very surface, but it feeds into what people believe. Yeah, Carrie's another great one, which is um, is you know a lot of these ones I would say are great books. I mean that's. Stephen King, you know, he, he wrote, that was his um, first published novel, his first paid novel. Um, but one, if you really, without, I'm not, just a quick detour, recommendation, if you, you can find it, because it's very hard to find, now is um, uh, Rage, uh, which was in the Bachman books. Mm -hmm. If you check, it is by far one of the most powerful stories I've ever read, and the best story about like a school, um, school violence. Um, but you know, maybe because I'm in corporate America, the other one I think about a lot, of course, is American Psycho. Um, I mean, I think Patrick Bateman is one of those individuals that people really go, you know, without debating the ending, we're not going to get into that and, and all of that, but uh, whether you're a fan of the book as well as the movie or, or just the film, I mean, that character, I, I think it's just, you know, that obviously like living id. I mean, completely brought to the surface in full force, but it also speaks to like what factors and is uh, uh, asked the question. It's like what effect uh, she asked, like what you know, kind of like what. Well, it's the whole happens. idea of power fantasies, and yeah, that kind of ties together like what we were talking about overall in the idea here. Like what makes what ties us to a character, like well, Fight Club. Hmm. I mean. That's an interesting one if we're staying like sort of to the argument of where we're talking about, where it's somebody who's uh, like home life and just overall standing in his life has led him to a point where his uh, schizophrenia manifests itself as an alternate personality. And then you're just basically arguing for two sides versus like the id versus the ego. You know, and that's one of those things where like, you know, he just needed professional help. <laughs> Start reading Fight Club 2. <laughs> True. Right, Adam, you look like you have something to I think say. this uh, gentleman actually had a question as well. Michael Douglas falling down. He was, you know, he took matters into his own hands, too, and he became, even though he was a villain through most of the movie, he's kind of scary.
in, yeah, someone in, the, in our audience just asked about Falling Down in Michael Douglas movie from the 90s and he and whether that character uh, it, he was sort of a villain throughout but then he did have the redemptive act at the end where he took the bullet so that's a good example of a character who fights within yeah, himself that was a very controversial movie at the time mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, question what about the opposite, like I spit on your grave where she's the victim at first and then becomes the yeah, that's sort of like, well, someone just asked about I spit on your grave, and uh, when a character who's a victim becomes a, a, like a violent anti-hero. I think the difference between, I think what, how I was, we were talking about the, the craft and Heather's, it's like those characters just kind of come in full on with their psychoses, like JD or Nancy, and the turn is gradual. It's always different, I think, in movies when a character is a victim of some kind of assault. We're more inclined to empathize with them. Like, for example, like The Crow. You know, here's a character who, you know, was mild-mannered until he was murdered. A bird brought him back and suddenly killing people is okay. You know, even though his foes in that movie are very charismatic. And I could argue, I, I could get behind Top Dollar because, you know... He's kind of cool. He's got a mystical half-Asian sister, and he like has a Detroit city-burning holiday he controls. So I don't know. But that's also when you get into that. I mean, for a lot. Well, when you get into the bring up like uh, spin your grave, I mean, you get into the the Haiti of the late '70s, early '80s of like what became known as rape revenge films. Ex you know, the um, the vigilante. Yeah. yeah, you have your stray dogs, Last House on the Left, uh, Savage Streets. Um, yeah, you're you know, and you get into the end and crossing over to like the home invasion one, which is obviously you know uh, really frightening again for a lot of people. But I think a lot of those films, you know, they're always up for debate as to um, you know the merits of, of of the characters and like you know why you know why did the bad you know this terrible yeah injustice violation have to happen to bring it to the stage where the individual becomes embodied uh, or um, you know empowered to. To take action against them, um, you know, and it's like uh, it was mentioned before as a term, a very much a power fantasy. Um, and some people said, well, in those cases, those individuals are simply being exploited, um, not only for profit through cinematic profit or whatever, or for demeaning, of course, largely of women. It was also, you know, there are a lot of people who didn't join them because they do see those injustices every day and they want them to end. They want to see something like that. They want to see, um, a, you know, especially violent, a violent end for especially stuff, uh, horrible things like child molestation and rape. So I think that that's where that comes from. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, you know, that's, uh, that's probably the most difficult one where you'd say the hero, the horror hero tag. Yeah, the genre hero, I suppose. Yeah. So what about bringing it back to um, a, where you root only for the bad guy and not for the good guy? Um, for example, Cabin in the Woods. Mm. I only rooted for the bad guy in that one. I thought they were horribly selfish for not dying at the end because mm -hmm. they ruin the world just for their own little short-lived life because they're going to die anyways. Yeah, I I, I've always life. wondered, about, for, the, for those who might not know what we're talking about, just because I feel like sometimes we do explain things on the podcast, and there might be people who don't know this, at the end of Cabin in the Woods, spoiler, spoiler 
there's these two characters who know they have to be destroyed so these elder gods won't destroy the planet, and instead they decide not to do that, even though they're going to die anyway. Talk about stupid, I don't know. But at the same time, I wonder if that's Joss Whedon's, like, kind of, like, stance on millennials, or they're kind of like... I, I don't know, because Sigourney Weaver tells them straight out, they're not going to rule the world, they're going to destroy it. Two minutes later, I hope those evil gods, I wish we could see them. That'd be so cool. Oh, another question. What about movies like Sleepaway Camp, where the only real bad guy isn't even really in the movie? Kirby, you want to take that one? <laughs> oh, Sleepaway Camp. Oh, it's such a classic. That one I am not going to give away any spoilers for. Because yeah, that's why I didn't that, say anything. That, that is one you absolutely have to see. But the one thing I will say, though, um, because you can definitely talk about the protagonist, Angela, and her brother um, at this camp and stuff, but a big part of it, with it in, you know, in terms of the build-up, not the ending and stuff, you can talk about, though, is, is that a lot of the the camp genre films from the 70s and 80s a big part of it is is you know it's kind of like that exacerbated like a totally exaggerated um uh version of like you know uh you know hello mudda hello fodder kind of thing like they just are like everything is yeah the camp granada it's like so like oh it's so horrible here in fact the original um one sheet for sleepaway camp if you actually read the text on the the thing it's like this is absolutely terrible you know they're hurting us you know and all these kind of things I and mean, it, it's it's really dark but that that kind of thing like with the characters and stuff I don't know I hated all of what I would consider the antagonists uh, the original antagonists in um, in sleepaway camp and stuff I mean they were all people I, I I don't know if I wanted them all to die, but definitely he wanted them to suffer. But wasn't wasn't that one just more about the the twist ending than well I, again, the shocking that, ending? Than yeah, well the shocking and the twist ending. I mean, I, this is the only thing I will pose, so I don't give away anything. There's there's you know one killer, but one thing that's always been postulated among some some of the big diehard Sleepaway Camp fans is the idea that there's actually two two killers in the film. And I've always really liked that idea because I think it lends credence to the to the thought process that um, that it was like a unified belief that people did deserve deserve what happened and um, you know they they took that revenge. I'm well, sorry, I don't well, know if that fully answers it. I just I cannot give away that ending. Well, so it, this this best, leads yeah. this leads to an interesting sidebar I want to take in a lot of these movies, especially like A Nightmare on Elm Street, for example. Do these characters who we cheer for actually deserve to die? Because, especially in A Nightmare on Elm Street, where really they're the children of... How do I say that? Sins of the Father. Sins of the Father type scenario. They're not really guilty for what happened to Freddy, but they're bearing the brunt of it. But at the same time, I think the ones in A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 are a lot more sympathetic, but they're the ones who are closest to the, the sinners. But when you get to like, especially part three, um, I, I feel bad for those kids. You know, or, you know, there's the kid who's really into Dungeons and Dragons, and well, yeah, we got to get the well, that. That's one where it blurred the lines of you know, you rooted for both of them. Yeah, exactly. You say he was like just the kid in the Dungeons and Dragons, say the kid in the wheelchair. Yeah, it's like Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. I mean, yeah. Well, no, because I don't root for the kid in the wheelchair in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No, I, I want true. him to die right from the get go. <laughs> Sorry. A deadly friend. You know. Good, good. Oh, that's true. Right. 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 
Uh, oh, there's a comment from our live crowd here. Was there one? Did you raise your hand? Yeah, I had a question. I'll see if I can. Okay, come up here so we can hear you. Oh, you can just yell. I'll repeat it. We're trying out the live format, folks. <laughs> the horse always kind of confused me. Okay, you're the mom. Mm-hmm. Was she the guy? Ah, we... I need to know. I, I never figured that out. Uh, well, we can talk about it afterwards. We, we can talk about, about it afterwards. afterwards. We just went into spoiler territory. This might be edited. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good question stuff. That's one we can definitely talk about afterwards. All right, all the way in the back, another question. Talking about your previous topic, I think that was one of the things with a uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. You didn't like the people, or at least I didn't. I, yeah. I wanted the family to kill them because they're like they're annoying the hell out of me. Yeah, yeah I was waiting to see like like how they would do it. And that's how they treat us. Well, that's I I. I... To, to paraphrase what our friend here in the live audience was saying, one of the problems with the House of a Thousand Corpses is uh, the, the people who show up to the roadside attraction, Rain Wilson et al., are very unlikable douchebags, and we want them Chris to Chris Hardwick is an unlikable douchebag? <laughs> Let's... Points! <laughs> but yes, um, I think that's kind of why he course-corrected in The Devil's Rejects and went out of his way to make them the heroes because you realize if Captain Spaulding and his kin have been dealing with like these types of people they're kind of doing a waste disposal service for humanity <laughs> you know I won't get into the whole Dr. Satan thing because I just question mark I don't want to know <laughs> well I, th I think a big one here too is that some of the audiences brought up and we've kind of talked about that's good opposed to you Victor and Adam is and Rupi as well, um, is the whole thing of the, the, the kind of evolution of these characters as horror heroes and stuff. You have somebody like an Ash who is spouting off one-liners from the Almost an hour we haven't gotten to Ash, folks. Yeah, we have not gotten to Ash, but I, we need to. But I think of also the, the, the hero, the villain, etc. But I think of a lot of people and stuff like that, you know, a Freddy like in Nightmare 1 is not the full-on cheeseball spouting, you know, one-liners left and right. Um, you know, that's an, that's an evolution for better or for worse. There are opinions on both sides. Um, and then there's, or it's restrained. Like, uh, um, like one of the best parts to me has always been child's play. Uh, you know, Chucky is, they, the original idea of the, the film, and it's played out pretty well in the first movie, is, is that there's some ambiguity about whether it's Andy or it's Chucky who's killing people. And it's like, because the, the, I don't think he could have thrown her out the window, but um, I do believe, obviously, he could have figured out how to, you know, blow, blow the, uh, blow the apartment and stuff like that, or the house up. You know, it's kind of like there, there's things, you know, you can see. We'll call that the good son kind of, mm -hmm. kind of policy. Well, but I just, I just kind of watched movies. I just always took it for granted it was Chucky. No, that's true. Well, the poster kind of. Yeah, that's true. I think the, the tagline from the reviewer when the critics was Chucky is one mean SOB. So, I mean, right. you kind of obviously, it wasn't Andy. But I did like that. But what I mean is, uh, the whole question here more is just towards what do you think? Did they lose their hero status? Did you identify them less when they got more uh, mainstream? Or do you think it was or more um, like they were trying well, to be likable? I, I think, as especially for Freddy, um, Characters, especially starting around part four, 
You know, and they still have. I'm gonna keep bringing up Dallas because I don't I care for this character. But it's like they needed a Nancy proxy, but all the other kids were basically presented as fodder. Especially since you look at a Nightmare on Elm Street three, where the Dream Warriors were presented their combined power with Nancy defeated Freddy. Yet they were all like, you know, knocked off like nothing at the beginning of a Nightmare on Elm Street part four, the Dream Master. So that right around there, it's like this is where these kids become fodder for Freddy, the pop culture phenomenon. I thought most of them were like that, except for Dream Warriors. Well, that's what I'm saying. They yeah. kill all the Dream Warriors at the beginning of Part Four like nothing. Well, that's because they couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't get Trisha Arquette back. They pretty much made that clear. Well, Tuesday that, that night. Is, that is why Alice. Yeah, didn't. I, I truly believe. Yeah, that. no. Well, I'm right about the proxy thing. Yeah, but like especially how like Kincaid, like the, the Kincaid had a dream in a Nightmare on Elm Street four, and his dog pissed on Freddy's remains in the dream, and this brought him back. Pissed fire. Yeah, sure. I mean, but you know they're trying to make money at the same time. They're also trying to dumb down or, or give a little bit more. Um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? More accessibility to Freddy. Yeah, you and can jump in. And so they're, what they're doing is they're, you could take Bruce Willis, stick him in the makeup, and put him on screen as Freddy. And you're just all you're doing is just having his moonlighting character dancing around in the hat and the glove. Mm -hmm. I've really never thought about that at all. That's a very <laughs> well, interesting visual. See, it's one of the interesting things too. Like, we could get into this whole thing on franchise in a future topic, but that works, I think, in the original Nightmare. But as soon as you gave him this weird, like, definitive child molester like uh, background in the new franchise and that Freddy's likability just went out the door. Oh, you mean the one that did it a few years ago? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Like, at that point, I'm like, I am in no... I just don't think it was constructed very well. No, it was badly written, and at that point, no character was likable, and then we go right back to charisma. At least one of your characters, the protagonist or the antagonist, has to be, you know, likable or unlike. And at, at that point, when you have a photorealistic looking burn guy who, it, you know, has McMartin preschool issues versus like a sassy, like nihilistic teen that's not likable, then you're like, I don't want, I want them both to die, you know? It's the second time we've dropped the McMartin school case on this podcast, but it's interesting. And if you do want to see a good version of that backstory, check out Freddy's Nightmares, episode yes. one, no, Miss, no More Mr. Nice Guy, directed by Toby Hooper. It's, it's very dated looking in a lot of respects, but the story is spot on. Um, here's an interesting thing as we're getting close to wrapping this up. We, we talked a little bit, somebody mentioned I spit on your grave, but uh, I'm interested in like, you know, we, we looked at like how victimization can kind of make someone uh, protagonist can get behind. But what about when like gender lines are reversed? They're like the hand that rocks the cradle, or fatal attraction, or obsession with you know Beyonce. You know, at that point, <laughs> you know, if you haven't seen Obsession, it's basically fatal attraction, and like uh, it, it has a they're all Idris Elba. He's married to uh, Beyonce, and then he has a psycho killer secretary who wants to bang him, played by Ali Larder, who just will kill Beyonce to get it through Selba. So you've seen that. Yes. <laughs> but it's very much like the hand that rocks the cradle or fatal attraction. Like at that point, you know, why is it suddenly, like, we don't get behind the guy. Like I don't look, look like to Michael Douglas in fatal attraction or disclosure and be like, yeah, beat Demi Moore. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just interesting me. I'm just trying to get a different spin on the topic. I don't know. Well, but the the whole like erotic thriller uh, future template of all lifetime original movies. I mean, it's like I mean, I actually recently watched The Boy Next Door. Um, or the Jennifer good stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but the good stuff is actually good because that that's uh, that's one thing I think is truly truly verboten in, in cinema is the killer kids. I mean, kids cannot be, I mean, truly terrible. I mean, and, and movies like, or having to do, I mean, whether it's, I mean, a Children of the Corn where it's kind of supernatural and hokey, but a, again, kind of, kind of hokey, but like a who can kill a child, bloody birthday, and, uh, and like a good son, you know, it's scary. Cause that, I mean, if you, especially if you know much about like um, kids that have killed, I actually thought of like, when we're talking about school shooting part and stuff or people in the satanic panic moral moral era of the 80s when it was like uh i was thinking or 90s with child's play three with the james bulger case in um in england i mean that's i mean it was really frightening i mean not only is that i mean absolutely horrendous if you ever read it but it's it's one of those things where people you know they they if you see the real life cases i mean the the film i think it's just too scary i think it's one of the only things they haven't explored much but Oh, the bat seed being the original. Great, great example. Um, so I guess we're getting close to like wrapping this up, right guys? Yeah, so if there's any any more questions, we can probably do like a little bit of a wrap up just in case here. Any questions oh, not about the Indian sleepaway camp? Over there on the left. Come on up here to plead your case. What about are we talking about zombies in general? No. Okay. Who do you uh, who do you vote like root for when the bad guy is the? Oh yeah, the bad guy is racist middle America in the fifties versus the black man and the survivor. Who is the only survivor until? Well, that's social commentary. That's social commentary, and a lot of times I think just by positing that scenario, George Romero is forcing you to think about it. It's like something's got to change because this just isn't right. Do you do you think the movie got more legs because of that? Because oh, of social I, commentary? Yeah, I, I remember. I, I think mean, I've I, seen a lot of documentaries. I think I saw a Document of the Dead, and he was talking about how it was like an unintentional like social commentary because he hired um, that actor just because That's he was the best like. actor. Yeah, right. yeah, but it spoke a lot of the country at the time, and it was really powerful during the end credits when you saw all these good old boys just kind of like you know. Whole, I think this is in the remake too, where it's just like kind of showing their like you know, prize kills and all that, like rounding up, having their barbecue and that. It's just like, this is kind of freaky, you know, like it's just a way to get rid of the other. The other could be, the zombie is the other, but it's really representing minorities or anything that like the mainstream establishment or the ruling paradigm of the societal construct we're in at the time can handle. Like we got to put them down before they take us out. Well, I think the biggest part about that was, you know, you, if you really want to broaden it out completely into the subgenre, it's definitely the post-apocalyptic, because that's a that's a, a genre. I mean, whether you really, you know, think of the more mainstream examples like The Walking Dead, or you think of a lot of the more obscure um, titles that have come out about that, and it's a really broad genre and has some great stuff out there. It's actually one of the few ones that really doesn't have a lot of heroes. Or there's times like I always think of like Day of the Dead, which is not only the darkest day of horror, but it really is 
an extremely like um, hard film because it asks a lot of the life's questions and about the the questions after everything has ended. But I mean, it's like a Captain Rhodes. I mean, he is the biggest bastard ever. But then at the same time, you know, it's kind of like you, you know the the division between how you're going to survive. It's like this is the here and now, which is a realistic angle, and then there's you know, Dr. Frankenstein going, well, we can, we can, we can figure out the future. It's like, there is, there's nothing to, and there's, in the middle, um, is them going, there is nothing to figure out. All we can do is do, it's all over. Let's just keep going. And I mean, that's usually the gradient of that genre, but that's where, I mean, but that's where people lie. That's where human beings lie is somewhere in there. Yeah. I mean, that's when I think the things I think when you look at uh, science fiction, future dystopia type scenarios, like Robocop or the Terminator, you know, like, you know, the Terminator has Sarah Connor usually is the hero. And Sarah Connor. And it's a scenario where she's fighting against the future, you know, like you're fighting against this inevitable that you can't, you know, that you can't stop, but at the same time you have to embrace no matter what. If you look at the Terminator, it's pretty much a perfect example of that. It's machinery that looks like a person. So as we go further on in time, you know, you can't get away from technology, it just becomes a part of you. Look at Robocop, you know, at the same time he's the hero, he's also owned by the establishment, OCP, the main bad guy, and they can just turn him off whenever he goes, because he's just a product. And it's weird because you look at that and it's like, you, these are things like when you're younger, you don't look at it because Paul Verhoeven and James Cameron were smart filmmakers working in a system that they saw, my God, like I am just creating a product. It's their way of being subversive, you know? So at the same time, you could go for the, for a Robocop against OCP, realize Robocop still is part of that establishment. It's a little frightening when you think about it that way. Oh, hi. Uh. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna start to wrap up, okay, and I'm gonna say that one of my one of my most favorite villains just to watch because I do, I couldn't even tell you really um, any other the characters or which ones it was except when they went to space and uh, maybe that's it. I mean when he went up against Freddy, uh, all the Jason films. You're always rooting for Jason. Well, the first one, but you know it's a little convoluted in that way, but. You don't really remember, I don't remember the characters, I just remember the kills. That's what I watched the movie for. So that's where it's just like all about the villain. As far as like a, like a hero, I, it's, it's Ashley Williams from Evil Dead. You're always rooting for that guy. Um, even though they, they'll try and like charm you with the deadites and you know, whatever. It's, it's always about Ash, you wanna hear the next line, you wanna see him put on you know, the chainsaw, you wanna see how he's gonna take you know, these deadites down and where he's gonna end up. Um, you're always rooting for him. Oh, I was unprepared, so yes, I'll agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, come on, you have a- Go down that All right, way. I'll come back, all right. You don't Kirby. have to have the final say, you know, all of it. Yeah. Kirby, then me, then Ruby. Think about it. <laughs> I mean, really, I think we've gone over all of them and stuff. I think that, um, kind of circling back to my first statement here, is just that, uh, I think the joy of, uh, of horror film and art and entertainment is just that you get, the villain gets to be the hero more often than not. And I mean, I think we're now in a, a world where um, that's a little bit more acceptable than it was. Um, you know, I, I think, or it's, you can be more open about it. Like it's, it's um, not something, but I think that people love 
I think people love villains more than they want to say, and I think it's because they either see something because it can be very empathy, um, you know, there's a lot of empathy, or it can be just that they really do believe that, um, you know, or it's for the fun, like Adam, Adam mentioned with Friday the 13th, and that's fine too, whatever it is, it doesn't have some deep, or it can be something, again, kind of in the middle where it's like, um, I, I like the villain, I like the hero or the protagonist and stuff, but what I really enjoy is this, the, that journey, that, that um, place where they end up mean, I mean, and in the end, when you get to comic books especially and, and uh, whatever it may be, video games, wrestling, a lot of stuff that is in the popular culture, it's because people want, I mean, this is why Freddy vs. Jason was the biggest film, it, it really does, you want that, that Clash of the Titans. But you also want something where it is, um, you know, sometimes can maybe not over a lot of, uh, of sequels or something, but it may be just with the original film. You want that um, closure and you want to be able to, to put that character, whichever one it is, on the pedestal. Yeah, I guess if I'm going to think like what's the hero character in horror. I go for the most, uh, you know, Sarah Connor, because I always liked her kill of the Terminator in part one, where she's like, you're terminated, and just crushes him in the steel press, and the eye goes all, like, ah, but I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and I, I guess, like, for a uh, horror villain, I, you know, I get, right now I'm very partial to Lopan, so I'm going to go that way, just because uh, I feel like, ultimately, his goals were relatable, and I'm also going to say that I like he could float through things. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quick say, actually, too, I just want to give it up for those that oddball one. Is, uh, I just want to say I rewatched it recently, and... Kathy Bates in Misery may be the scariest, oh. scariest villain in film history. See, I just come back to bad guys that I just hate. Okay. You know, because my favorite is Freddy. I love Freddy. I, I used to have nightmares with of Freddy when I was a kid, and for some reason I still love him. So, um, but like bad guys, I hate Jaws. Oh. Jaws is forever hate. You know, that one, that one's that one I have to like purposefully not think of every time I go to San Diego because it freaks me out. So, no alcohol and night swimming for you? No, <laughs> definitely not. I don't know. I think, I think animal monsters is gonna have to be a future topic like alligator and orca, the or dead Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah, there you go, arachnophobia. So, uh, I think that's pretty much it for this edition of uh, Cult Following. We've you know, learned a few things, made some friends, and I think hopefully we've entertained y'all. You can, you know, you know, be out loud in a, some sort of yay or boo in that kind of scenario. Thank you so much. You can always find past episodes of uh, Cult Following on iTunes at Cult Following, also on SoundCloud, and you can always check out what all of us are up to every month at cultclassicsaz.com, cultclassicsaz on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Our next event is Jaws, 40th anniversary, June 20th, which we'll be giving away tickets to off the air once this podcast is over. Um, what else am I missing here? Adam or Kirby are my fellow hosts. I think that's about it. That's a, you got it. Yeah. Jaws, just by accident, uh, Cult Classics AZ is showing it on the exact 40th anniversary day 
that it uh, yeah it's, it's kind of awesome yeah you can find out more about and it that's just by coincidence yeah you didn't even know I didn't even name. know yes. <laughs> and I'm Victor Marino Kirby Nelson and Murkowski oh and there's Ruth Ruby, who also runs Geekly Phoenix, check out Geekly Phoenix on Facebook.com slash group slash Geekly Phoenix and Facebook.com slash Geekly PHX, because we only need three letters, boom. <laughs> and as always, don't eat after midnight, unless it's a convention. Stay dry. Whatever. Weeze out.